I feel like marathons or endurance sports or, or these types of Spartan races or, or whatever it is that you elect to participate in is a way of building our mental toughness, building that sort of skin that maybe our parents were forced to develop. We no longer have the opportunity to develop in that sort of organic, natural way. That's the way I sort of view it. And I come at it from, again, a place of immense gratitude and humility, knowing that I am so lucky that I get to choose to run a marathon instead of being forced to do it because of the circumstances. Hey, folks, welcome to 8020 Endurance with Matt and Hannah and our guest, Joanne Molinaro or the Korean vegan, as you may know her. Yes, I know her as the Korean vegan. You <laughs> knew her before she kind of blew up on TikTok and became a full-time content creator, but that's how I was introduced to her. And from the quote at the beginning of this episode, you hopefully can quickly realize that she has just so many layers to her, an onion of a human, so well-spoken. And the biggest thing from this episode that I took was She's just got her shit together. Um, she has her priorities figured out. She is seemingly extremely good with time management, just such an organized human. And the way that she prioritizes her life is honestly something that's very respectable and it inspired me. Yeah. I can't think of anyone else I've, I've ever known who was just a friend of mine and then became, I don't, she's not a household name, but I mean, she's like a pretty big deal now and just to like just like have a front row seat to watch her achieve this very well deserved success you know i get it like we live in a time where you can be famous for nothing <laughs> but you know that that's not joanne like there's just so much substance there and uh, yeah those who stick through this uh, this interview with her will uh, appreciate that to the full by the time you get to our what's your jam mm -hmm. and for those of you that like the quick facts the quick tips from these episodes you will get a few of those she talks about her relationship with running which is so interesting and unlike a lot of our guests that we've had on the episode so i think it'll be a bit of an awakening and a different approach than you're probably strapped into here. So stay tuned for that. Right on. So let's get to it. Joanne Molinaro, welcome to 8020 Endurance, the podcast that's 80% peanut butter and jelly and 20% kimchi fried rice. Though I have a feeling that's about to change. <laughs> I'm happy to be part of that change. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for having me, guys. I'm really excited to be here, especially if there's kimchi fried rice at the end of it. <laughs> yes. One of my 2020 resolutions is cooking more, and kimchi is one of the very first things that I want to attack. So Ooh. we can speak off mic about that. But... <laughs> That's ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> okay. Maybe I start with something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm here for it. Whatever, whatever you're, you're doing for your goals of 2022, I think that sounds like a great one. Appreciate it. So Joanna, I want to hear about your very first TikTok video and why you chose to do it. Obviously, you're a runner too, and we'll get into that later in this conversation. But me being most of the social media for 8020 Endurance, 
I want to hear what was the inspiration for that video and what was the video? So my very first video, well, let's be 100% honest here because I want to start out on the yeah, right please. foot. So That's my, the only <laughs> way we operate over here. So I started my, like I actually started a TikTok account in April of 2020 and I had literally no idea what it was I like downloaded it on my phone I opened it up and I was like okay what is this and I think my very first video was like me making a bagel from scratch or something like that and I you know like I didn't know what I was doing. I, I can't stress that enough. I didn't know what TikTok was, what the community was. I just was like, oh, this is a thing. I'm going to do it. And I posted it. I think like one person viewed it. Like nobody saw it. And then I literally did not go back to that app for three months because I didn't really have any interest in it. It was around that time of year, you know, a lot of things were happening in our country politically, sociologically. I think as a country, we were grappling with the implications of the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and what that meant to us, you know, from an identity standpoint, from an activism standpoint. And on top of that, you know, just politically, things were always sort of like on the cusp, I felt like. And I was reading a lot about how young people were responding to that on TikTok and how they were sort of creating this sort of movement on TikTok in their very meme-driven, tongue-in-cheek sort of way. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating because they were able to actually do things with their activism, again, in this sort of tongue-in-cheek sort of way. And I was seeing bits of it in the news. I was see some of it come through on my Instagram, which is where I was most active as the Korean vegan. And I felt like I was getting sort of secondhand versions of these types of things. And I wanted to see it. Like I wanted to be part of it, like not necessarily as an activist, but I just wanted to be like part of that groundswell, you know? So I was like, well, okay, let me go back to TikTok. You know, my bagel video had gotten all of one view. And I was like, <laughs> let me go back as a consumer. I just want to watch these videos. I don't really have any intention of creating another bagel video or whatever. So I basically just watched a lot of videos for a while. And then my next video was what I consider to be my like true first video. It was like a kale and tofu scramble video. And it was like, well, I'm seeing other people create food content on TikTok. I am a food blogger. Maybe I should do something with this TikTok thing. And that was my first, what I consider my first video. And even that is an embarrassment when you look at it. It's like so bad. Yes. Well, I mean, your videos, your most recent videos, and I'm sure it wasn't the same type of style that you have now where it's this emotional it really grabs you the quality of the video is insane how long does it take you to make one of these videos so it does take me a long time because yeah. i have to prepare the food you right. know which in itself is like probably an hour at least to just make whatever it is that i'm making and sometimes it's even longer if it's a bread dish then it's going to be at least three hours right and then i have to shoot it and then I have to edit it, and then I have to write the voiceover that goes along with it. I've got to record it. So it can take anywhere from like, you know, three hours to seven or eight hours for a 60 second video. Wow. Do, yeah. I, do I have it? Do I have it right that you sometimes shoot the food you make? Because I thought I was the only one who did that. Like, I just. <laughs> 
<laughs> it just never turns out the way I wanted to. I take it out to the backyard and shoot it. Yes, I. That is exactly what I do. I line it all up. <laughs> I read them their rights and then I shoot them. <laughs> and then off, off it goes. Yes, and then and that's that's the process. You have figured out the secret sauce, Matt. <laughs> So we only get to see the survivors on TikTok. Yes, exactly. That's why they're so special. <laughs> Natural selection. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, just to follow that up, actually, is there like a, a hidden disaster videos that we never get to see? Because, you know, it, I mean, my, my poor wife, Nataki, you know, Nataki, like mm. she she tried, you know, baking is just another thing. And she tried <laughs> she tried something it did not. She said, you're eating it anyway, but this is just today. <laughs> no one's perfect, right? Do you have like some yes. epic kitchen disasters? I do. I do have, you know, I don't have a lot, but I definitely, especially baking. Baking is hard enough, but baking vegan is, takes it to a whole another level because then you don't have eggs anymore. And eggs have very specific chemical properties that make baking a lot easier. <laughs> and I don't have those. So basically many French pastries are really difficult to do. And so there are certainly times where I was expecting to get beautiful lady fingers and I got big blobs <laughs> coming out of my baking sheet and that doesn't make it into my videos. I will say like the videos that I make, 90% of the time they're recipes that I have tested in some shape or form. So I very rarely feel like I have wasted hours filming a video and then at the end of the day the product comes out horrible and it's not something I can use. I, I honestly can't think of a time where, where that has actually happened. If I, if I am going to be baking something for the first time, I'm not taping it. I'm going to do it in my own kitchen first and once I feel comfortable sharing that recipe recipe with the rest of the world, that's when I will film it in my studio. Very efficient. <laughs> and before you went full time with content creation and the Korean vegan, you were a partner at a law firm, right? That's correct. Okay. You were also married. You're like, you're making these videos seven, eight hours. You're running marathons, half marathons. Can you talk to us a little bit about balance there? Because I'm single, I am don't have kids, I'm not married, and I have one job, well, I'm one and a half, and training, and that's basically it. And it's sometimes it's even hard for me to have balance. So can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, I think, you know, I think sometimes we grab on to things that are intended to be good for us and then they end up actually just adding more pressure to us than necessary. So this concept of balance, it's like, oh, well, I guess balance is a good thing. So now I have to add that to the list of things that I must aspire <laughs> to have. And then that actually creates a lot of pressure. It's the same thing with happiness. Like, oh, well, happiness is a good thing. Well, if I'm not happy, there must be something wrong with me, right? Like, what am I doing wrong? And then there's pressure to be happy all the time. And what I like to tell people is something that a partner told me, a rainmaking partner at my firm told me when I was a first year law associate. She said, there's no such thing as balance. Throw it out the window, especially in this profession. And if you're a woman, you're not going to find it. That's not something that you need. And I was like, well, if I don't have balance, then what's the alternative to that? Being stressed out all the 
time. I don't want that either. And I ultimately discovered through working at the firm that it isn't really balanced because how can it be balanced sleeping on the floor of your office every couple of nights? You know, how can it be balanced working 18 hour days and, you know, wearing the same thing you did the day before? That's not balanced, but it is part of my job. And I wasn't about to give that up, right? It was more about priorities and figuring out what was important to me, what I found valuable, and what I was willing to invest myself into, whether it was my time, my resources, my mental you know, capacity, my physical capacity. And I kind of figured out that there are a few things that are really important to me. Number one is my job, right? Very important to me. My clients at my job are very important to me. And I'm not including family in this list because that's a given. Obviously, like my family trumps all, right? But putting that aside, it was my job first. And, you know, by the time I was a partner, that meant my clients first. And then it was running second. And then it was the Korean vegan third. That was like a list that was sort of like ingrained in my head. So it once I had that list in my head, then it was just a matter of taking the time that I had in each given day and taking the amount of resources I had like physically and mentally and then portioning those out in accordance with that hierarchy of priorities. And sometimes that meant that the Korean vegan just didn't get any of me you know, on a given day. And sometimes it meant that I had to forego a training run because I had a deposition or because I had an important client meeting. But it would always follow that sort of rule. And at the end of the day, if that meant I had to sacrifice a little bit here and there, it was okay. Because I had already agreed with myself that these were the priorities. Forgive me for picking up just one thread in, in, that, in that answer you gave, which is that something I, I know about you is that you are unapologetically ambitious. You, <laughs> you, you, you put it out there. And I'm interested to know, what, you know how much, I mean, that's authentically you, but is there a little bit of an agenda there, a little bit of you know, conscious defiance of stereotype or expectations for an Asian American woman? Well, I think, I mean, in some ways, ambition is very much uh, fulfillment of the stereotype, I feel like, if, if anything, you know, like my parents had always ingrained in me the idea that you have to work like way harder than the other students and the other Americans because, you know, we don't have money like they do. There's an inherent language barrier. I mean, I, English wasn't my first language, Korean was my first language. So I had to, you know, hurdle that as well. So I felt like they always kind of taught me that you have to work a little bit harder than everyone else, right? And I think that ambition is, to me, like another word for making sure that I'm far enough ahead that I don't ever fall behind. And it's, it's very, like, I feel like for me, like, running is always the perfect analogy for everything that I do. But you know how, like, there's that instinct in a lot of us is like, you know, the first half of a marathon, and this is something that you have to really train yourself not to do, but the first half of a marathon, you want to bank some time, right? So instead of running slower than you actually should, you know, your, your you know, marathon pace, you actually want to run a little bit faster so that with every single mile, by the time you're at the half point, you've banked a good amount of time 
time just in case things go shitty for the second half of the marathon. And I think that's sort of the instinct in me. So this ambition is really no more than just trying to bank a little bit, bank a little on my success, bank a little on my hours, bank a little on my savings account. Literally, there's just like building a cushion for myself just in case something goes wrong on the back end and I have something to fall back on. It's not always the smartest thing to do, just like in a marathon, but it is very instinctive. We talk a lot about self-awareness and how that relates to successful endurance athletes. And just from, what, 13 minutes of conversation with you, it's very evident that you are very self-aware with just the, you know, work-life balance slash lifestyle you talked about and even that answer you just gave. But um, curious to know, what's your competitive edge? Is it is it driven by kind of what you just explained, like internally for yourself? Do you like competing against other people? What does that look like? I'm a very competitive person to a fault. It's it's actually really unattractive. It's one of the Shoot, reasons. we can skip this one. We'll edit it out. No, it's, it's authentic. It's real. I keep it real. I, I don't... I don't play board games anymore because I get so, I get really annoying and it's why I stopped playing video games because I, oh my God, I, especially online, I I would get really, I'm very competitive and in a team situation, I demand a lot from my teammates because I want to win and I've discovered, especially this year, that that desire to win, that ambition is, again, driven by a sense of needing to feel safe. I don't feel safe if I'm, you know, at par. I need to be well past par in order to feel like I've got that cushion, again, in case the penny drops, everything falls apart. So winning for me is very similar to that idea. It's not enough to be second place, third place, fourth place. I need to be like first place, but not just like, you know, a little bit first place, like well, (laughs) well fast, you know? So I'm very competitive in that way. I mean, I have broken tennis rackets to prove it. I have broken so many tennis rackets because I've thrown them to the ground or thrown them out the court because I'm not doing well. And so that is something in me. Now, the interesting thing about that, and my husband and I, who's also a very avid runner and athlete, we were talking about this, like, why don't you have that in running, right? I mean, I'm not sitting here trying to, you know, win first place at any races. I'm, I mean, I'm happy if I get a medal, okay, most of the time. And that edge that you described doesn't really appear in running. And I think that's one of the reasons I love it so much because it is so not toxic when in so many other areas of my life, there's this temptation to turn it into something that's no longer joyful, that's no longer fulfilling, that's really hurtful to my mental health and I have to guard against that in my career in my job in so many other facets of my life but for whatever reason in running it's like no I know I'm never going to be the best at running I know I'm middle of the pack or even you know below average when it comes to my speed and my endurance and it's not a competition against anyone else it's just about me and proving something to myself every single day Speaking of balance, like you've, you've talked about your unattractive qualities, but you have, you have, let's start with that. 
<laughs> you have other, you've got those out of the way. <laughs> yeah. You have other sides to you. And you, you talked about with getting involved in TikTok, it was it was it was sort of a giving impulse or, or a desire to serve and like stand up and be counted. I think that's very much what you do with your Korean vegan thing. It, it's it's like, you know, it's not just trying to draw attention to yourself like you you have like this kind of nourishing like you, you you want to nourish people so am i right am i right or wrong about that and i think that that is an ever-evolving question about myself i like at the end of the day i cannot stand a deception even self-deception and i always want to be honest to the point of it even being painful like i'd rather be truthful and it be ugly than be a lie and it be pretty so of course there's a part of me that likes attention you know oh i want to be famous like who does like you know not everybody but like you know when i was growing up i was like i want to be a famous actress when i grow up you know like that was my dream so there is of course that sort of instinct and it's fun like it's you know fun being interviewed by, you know, the LA Times and the Washington Post. It's fun seeing my cookbook, you know, all over the place. Like, that's wonderful. But I will say, not everybody has this privilege, but I do. I had a 17-year career as a lawyer, and as a result of that, I feel like I'm in a place financially and otherwise where I can afford to do things not for money necessarily, not for fortune and fame or all of those things. I can actually do something that's important to me as a value. And what I have realized over the past year as I continue to question the why behind the Korean vegan in order to sharpen my business plan and in order to sharpen my mission statement and all of those things is that, okay, the core values that have always been important to me are eradicating racism, are bringing compassion and empowerment, particularly to women who have had a difficult time, who've been abused, who've been through emotional uh, abuse and things like that, and the environment, you know, climate change. These are the things that really are important to me. And for whatever reason, the universe decided to bless me with the Korean vegan. And now I get to do that full time, you know, and, and spread that message in a way that's strategically effective. Your, your most viewed video on TikTok, if I'm not mistaken, is talking about that balance of how, you know, how am I a partner at a law firm and a content creator? And it's like starts off very cute. I'll link it in the show notes. Very cute. You're like making a pie. And then all of a sudden you're in this power suit and it, there's <laughs> a quote from AOC. Yes, thank you. And you're quoting that and it's just jaw-dropping. So do watch that in the show notes. So you talked about your priorities when you were doing the content creation, partner at the law firm. You had those three priorities, including your family as well. And then you just named these three, it seems like life purpose things that you're trying to go after. Is that is that still what you're trying to accomplish? And how do you feel that you're best accomplishing each of those? So when I started The Korean Vegan in 2016, I was plant-based. I just turned plant-based and it was mostly like a challenge to me personally, right? Like there were so many things like happening in my brain that I can now articulate with hindsight, but I didn't really know what was happening at the time, right? It was just like one day my boyfriend, now husband's like, oh, I'm going to go vegan. And I'm like, 
what? <laughs> like, it was very jarring to me. And I think for some people, it's not a big deal. But for me, it was a huge deal because I provided the food for both of us. And cooking was a vehicle for me to show him how much I cared about him. And now he was changing all the rules about how I was supposed to do that. And I felt like, you didn't even consult me on this, you know, like, hello, like, this is, this is a love language for me. And now you're telling me I need to learn a new one, like without even telling me, like, giving me any notice, like, that's kind of how I felt. Adding to that was the fact that I felt veganism was a horrible diet. Like I thought it was like really bad for you because I was like, it was all carbs, you know? Like I, I don't believe in carbs. I don't eat carbs. Like at the time I was paleo. So it's like, I don't eat carbs. I eat meat and I eat cheese, <laughs> basically. There were so many things that were a little bit jarring. But I think like really what I was so nervous about at the bottom of it was my boyfriend was a Caucasian American man. I was a Korean American woman. And I identified with my food very culturally. And I didn't know enough about veganism to know that it could be still culturally significant to me. I thought veganism was kale salads and quinoa and things that I never wanted to really eat, right? Because they were not kimchi, they're not kimchi jjigae, they're not things that I grew up eating. And so I felt very much like someone was threatening to take away my Koreanness from me by saying that they're going to go vegan and now I need to prepare vegan food. And so this is all happening. I created the Korean vegan when I decided to join my boyfriend and, and be vegan as well as a way to prove to myself, no, I can still eat Korean food. I can still retain this aspect of my heritage and my cultural identity, even though I decide to do something different with my diet. And at that time, it was for health reasons. It wasn't for the other reasons that many people go vegan. And so that's why I started it. In 2017, I started sharing the stories about my mom and my dad and my grandparents. In addition to the recipes, I was veganizing Korean food. And now I thought, well, why not add another dimension to the Korean vegan and help people appreciate the family behind the food that I'm sharing with them, the stories that underpin these recipes. And that was very intentional. I did that because what I felt the 2016 election had revealed to me was that maybe there were some people in my country who didn't know what it was like to be me, who didn't know what it was like to be an Asian American or to have immigrant parents. And what could it hurt to just share some stories? Like, I'm not telling you that you need to vote a certain way or feel a certain thing. I'm just sharing some stories with the hope that maybe it will inform your compassion in some way. And so those things were very intentional, right? It wasn't until this year when I decided to go full-time as a content creator and start essentially a small business called The Korean Vegan that I really needed to be very specific and strategic about what these values mean to me and what I want to actually execute when it comes to that plan. So clearly, those two things are still a component of The Korean Vegan, you know, sharing these stories, sharing recipes. But I think the message has in some ways become more inclusive, but has become much more specific. Food is always more than food. As the guy who wrote Diet Cults, I know that as well as, as anyone, but, but food is also food. And, you know, 
tell me if I'm wrong, but you seem to approach the creative aspect of recipe development in a way that reminds me a little bit of my approach to writing, which is like, I don't like to be over influenced. Like I, I'm actually kind of content to, I like to block stuff out and just go ahead and reinvent the wheel and, and figure out like, this is Matt's take. And, and if I'm a little bit naive and I need to tidy things up later, when I know a little bit more, great, but I don't want to be over influenced. And it seems like that's kind of the approach you took to, you know, veganizing Korean food. It's like, I think some people had already done that, you know, when you got around to it, but you're like, well, I'm going to figure out my way. I'm going to lean on the authenticity, like just, you know, the actual, you know, tradition of the food and find my own ways to veganize it. And if that, if that's new and different, or if it overlaps with some other things other people have tried, either way, I'm doing it my way. Is, is that fair? I think that's exactly right. I think that there were a couple people maybe who've done a little bit of veganizing of Korean food. I mean, I don't want to be like Pollyanna about this. Like I am very strategic about what I do. If I feel like the market is saturated with things then I'm not going to do it like that way, like I, I need to find a way to differentiate myself. And I was lucky when I started the Korean vegan, there was probably only one blog that did a, like that did a little bit, not even really, you know? So I knew that like, okay, this is a market that hasn't yet really been fully tapped into. And so I have an opportunity here as well. I think the other thing is, though, what you describe, and I love the analogy of kind of the way that you write, it's always important to have a good story. And it's important to have sort of a good understanding of the characters within that story. But it's also important to have good vocabulary. Like you have to have these tools, right? And I think that that's sort of the way that I work. I like having culinary vocabulary from a vegan perspective, right? I, I want to know like, what is aquafaba? How does that work? If you're not vegan, you probably don't need to use aquafaba, right? Or I want to understand like, what does this application of this particular temperature to baking powder and baking soda, like what do those things do? So that builds out my cooking kitchen vocabulary, but I am not looking at other people's recipes and re, you know redoing them i'm not sitting here being like oh i want to make a vegan carby so i'm going to look for somebody else's vegan carby and see what they did like that's not what i'm doing i feel like it's more just trying to build my vocabulary so that i'm in a position to originate recipes as opposed to modify somebody else's existing recipe I can tell that competitive edge is definitely um, embedded in your content <laughs> creation. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I mean, I think that, like, again, it, yes, I, I, I want to be successful at what I do. And I think that when you want to have success, you need to be realistic about it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to sit here and create the same videos that everybody else has because that is not a very effective way of differentiating yourself to create value-driven content or a product for your potential consumer. It just, it's, it's much harder to do it that way. So, you know, I am always thinking of like, well, what can I do to differentiate myself? And is that difference going to provide incremental accretive value to my consumer? So carbs are good for runners. Yes, thank uh, God. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So, you know, for those for those who who are listening and are athletes and just want to learn one golden nugget that they can, you know, immediately apply to their own lives for their short term benefit as athletes, the food that that you have in your book and on your blog and, and elsewhere, TikTok, good for runners. I mean, you're a runner yourself. We talk about the health and fitness promoting aspects of food. What's your angle on that? So I am not very mm, driven by having sort of a formulaic approach to fueling my body. I think that works for some people, particularly if you're if you're like elite or just you know sub elite or if you're a professional athlete. I do think that it is important to be a little bit more detailed, I guess, or vigilant about macros and kind of understanding what certain things like what kind of levers to pull for your particular body and, and you know whatever event you're training for because I think that that will also guide kind of how you fuel generally speaking it is very important for me to have carbohydrates in my my life for my own <laughs> mental well-being i spent so much of my life not eating rice not eating sugar not eating pasta bread potatoes i had done that for years and that brought me to a place from a mental perspective that was really unhealthy for me and i was not happy so i was like okay well I'd rather, you know, gain 10 pounds and eat rice and potatoes and be happy than be absolutely miserable and fit into these gold jeans. Like it just like it didn't make sense for me, right? Now, I started running mostly because I was like, oh, well, I live right by the lake and I, you know, I'm getting up in age, I was like 35 years old. I was like, I should probably start incorporating regular physical activity in my life. And running is the most like, you know, it's the cheapest thing. <laughs> Just throw on a pair of shoes and go, you know? There's <laughs> no gym membership, nothing. And I lived right next to the Lakefront Path, which is one of the most gorgeous stretches of uninterrupted running path in the country. So I had no excuse. And it's just more serendipitous than anything that, oh, well, I run a lot and I love carbs. So those two can go hand in hand. <laughs> now, I, you know, when I am training for something, like if I am training for a marathon, you know, I probably ratchet up the sort of intention of my food a little bit more. I am sort of cutting out most refined, you know, carbs and replacing them with complex carbohydrates like sweet potatoes over white potatoes. You know, we try to do brown rice pasta over regular white pasta, basically try to cut out all the gluten, no refined sugar, like those kinds of things. But generally speaking, yeah, like my food is very like, it's it's designed for runners. I feel like there's lots of rice, you know, lots of brown rice pasta, lots of sweet potatoes and potatoes and things like that with healthy lean proteins like tofu, black beans and things like that. I'm drooling. <laughs> yeah, I, I was looking at recipes for a black bean casserole, which I had never even heard of that before. I was reading a book about this woman who's like a vegetarian, and she was like, oh, black bean casserole for dinner. I'm like, black bean casserole? That sounds amazing. I love casseroles. So I was like, how am I going to do this? So I was like, oh, what does that even look like? What is it? And so now I have all these ideas of like how I'm going to make my own black bean casserole. Amazing. Stay tuned for the next TikTok video. Yes, exactly. You heard it here. Yes. <laughs> I'd love to touch more on the running portion of your life. I know I I did a bit of research and I know that your father ran growing up 
at being like you said you know it doesn't cost a lot to run and that's where he found his joy his confidence his courage do you find the same thing with running and how did it stick because it takes a lot for something mm. physically too I think to stick and be a part of someone's routine that's so true well my father you know I should clarify he didn't run like he didn't run races or anything like that he's always valued physical fitness like that was mm-hmm. very important to him and it was something he tried to instill in us kids growing up and I hated it like I hated it I like hated playing tennis with him I hated soccer I hated all the things that he made us do I felt like I felt like it was awful. But in retrospect, like, I'm so glad that it was a routine for us. Like, every Sunday morning, we would have to do some type of physical activity. When I run marathons now, and he's there, out there on the course cheering me on, I I now know just how much pride he has. Because it's not like, you know, the random person who doesn't really, you know, physical fitness is, you know, take it or leave it. No, this is something that's actually really important to him and something that's been important to him his whole life. That's something that he wanted his children to value. And so to see me achieve in that way is especially important to my father. I think, you know, he ran because he had to, like that was his job, right? He had to run for his father's rice distribution business. The fastest runner would be the one who got to the buyers at the beginning of the day and they would set the trade for the rest of the day. And, you know, as I, you know, I've talked about at length, my father was like the poorest of the poor, you know, like they had nothing. And so running ensured his survival. Like literally it meant that he had like 10 more beans that day to eat than he otherwise would. So that was why he ran. I, you know, run for sort of a different purpose. And I do think that confidence is so much harder to earn these days because my father's generation, I don't don't care where you lived, I feel like any generation previous to us, their struggles and the kind of life and death existential types of moments in their life, I, I felt like, that happened regularly to my mom and my dad. There were so many times in their life where they almost died. And that was just like a thing. And now they look back and they think it's hilarious and funny. Oh yeah, I almost died that time. I almost died this time. I was starving to death. You know, That was just part of their fabric, right? I don't have anything like that. Thank God, in many respects, I'm so grateful that my parents came here to the United States and you know, literally on their backs brought with them all of these opportunities that I now am living off of. But, you know, the cost to that is that I have not been tested in the way that my mom and dad were. And so sometimes I feel like marathons or endurance sports or, or these types of Spartan races or, or whatever it is that you elect to participate in is a way of building our mental toughness building that sort of skin that maybe our parents were forced to develop, we no longer have the opportunity to develop in that sort of organic, natural way. That's the way I sort of view it. And I come at it from, again, a place of immense gratitude and humility, knowing that I am so lucky that I get to choose to run a marathon instead of being forced to do it because of the circumstances. 
Yes, life is too easy. Let's make it harder. If you know, I, again, and I don't want to diminish like what people are going through, especially with a, a pandemic. But like you know, one of the things that I loved about Matt's book, "Life Is a Marathon," is that all of this struggle, you know, this beautiful life struggle doesn't have to just be an analogy for a marathon. You're actually also running a marathon. You're training for marathons. You're doing these things and in so doing, equipping yourself to kind of step up to that line when life asks you to do it when it demands that of you. I don't think I would have been tough enough to deal with my divorce. I don't think I would have been tough enough to deal with some of the things that happened after my divorce. I don't know that I would have had the courage to leave the partnership of my law firm had I not known that I had the toughness to run 26.2 miles. Amen. Dang. (laughs) That is a mic drop moment right there. Well, there, I'm not dropping my mic. <laughs> okay, please, yeah, please don't. It looks very nice. <laughs> I think that you make a very good point, which I've never thought of about how hard it is to find confidence in this day and age. And I think people try and pull different levers and maybe they'll get a new wardrobe and it, it appeases them for a little bit. But like the true confidence that you feel in your soul, especially for, I mean, at least us three people sitting here, comes from these athletic endeavors that we like you said elect to participate in you know no one's forcing us to do this we don't have to do this sometimes I actually do feel like I'm being forced to do it (laughs) you must run this marathon (laughs) yeah it's like I think just growing up as an athlete I'm like well this is who I am like what's the next race here we go but yeah it's definitely a very freeing feeling when you when you elect to to do something and I just find it so interesting that running for you is like you're peaceful, you know, where you, you don't feel any of this pressure. That's like very, very opposite to, I think, a lot of the people that we've had in the podcast and a lot of obviously athletes, professional athletes, like this is their job. And you're so competitive and, and that's your 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 Zen moment. It and is. Where you don't feel like you need to do that. <laughs> it's the liberty of mediocrity. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and pressure myself to sprout a pair of wings and fly to Mars. I mean, that's the level of impossibility we're talking about when it comes to excelling at running in a way where I would actually be competitive. Like, it's just, I know, like, my body is not capable of that. My body's not built like that. Or maybe it is built like that, but you know what? It isn't important enough to me where I'm literally willing to give up everything else in my life, which is what I would have to do in order to train and, and really excel at that in the way that I would need in order to have some margin of an opportunity to potentially succeed in that way. It's just not worth it, right? So like, it's fine for me to be like, you know what? I need something where just seeing incremental improvement on my own is enough. Or not even that. I mean, like my last marathon was like the slowest marathon of my life. I was like, oh my gosh, what happened here? But you know what? It was fine. I had a book launch. I had, you know, like all sorts of other things going on in my life. I was just really proud that I finished a marathon because believe me, at mile 20, I was like, I could go into that McDonald's and nobody would know. Nobody would know. And I could just stop and have some French fries and, you know, like it would be okay. And so. Hey, aren't you the Korean vegan? Would you like fries with that? Wait a minute. I know you. You know what? I did not look. Spotted. I was not recognizable by mile 20. I was a wreck. And, you know, it did cross my mind. But, like, I was just happy that I finished. And, uh, 
like I said, there's so much more that is beneficial to me. There's so much more that I get out of running that I don't need to win. Like, I just don't. I, I feel like I've already won in so many ways when I finish whatever it is I've set out to do. You know, today it was, you know, uh, a workout. Yesterday it was six miles. I, you know, I don't care. In three months it'll be uh, the half marathon. So there's just, it's all good. Hannah, I got another one queued up. So if you don't, if you don't hurry. Well, I was, my my follow-up question was going to be, because this is this is just, again, how my mind operates, I think, from just, being an athlete since like age four was how how do you not want to know what your body can do mm. and how far you can go and how hard you can push it's just that, that <laughs> and i'm not i'm not shaming you mm, i swear mm. this is not not a uh, diss or anything but it's just so interesting how the rest of your life seems very much like that and it's a similar question you don't have to go off on it but yeah no that's a really good question i think that If I were 20 or like, you know, 28 or you know what I mean? Like, I think that I probably would have a different decision matrix involved, right? Mm -hmm. I'm 42 and I feel like, okay, I want to make sure, again, that that hierarchy of priorities is something that I can fully commit to, right? What is important to me? Because what that hierarchy is premised upon is the truth that there's only one person and your resources are not unlimited. They are absolutely limited. You cannot do everything. You, you, you mm-hmm. cannot give 100% to everything. It's just, it's mathematically impossible, right? So if you know that as a truth, then you really do have to start valuing your priorities. What is the valuation of priority one? What's the valuation of priority two? What's the valuation of priority three? And I think that I've been sort of, you know, thinking about, well, what is purpose? What is joy? What is happiness? You know, the struggle, you know, I've been reading a lot of like Camus and things like that, like all these sort of existential kind of questions, right? And at the end of the day, I feel like if I want to live the most joyful life that I can, then it needs to be anchored by purpose. And for me, winning a race or taking my body to the nth degree and seeing what it can become, that is not a purpose that brings me joy. It doesn't. And I have, you know, part of that is informed by the fact that in many respects, I have taken my body to the nth degree and it has really not been a good situation, right? I've Mm -hmm. struggled my whole life with body dysmorphia. I've struggled my whole life with eating disorders and, you know, doing all sorts of things that in some respects took my body to the nth degree to see what it was capable of, right? Mm -hmm. And it was unhealthy. It created terrible habits. It created a very dysfunctional relationship with food, which I will probably have to live with for the rest of my life, right? So in many ways, running is sort of the healing of these things that I've done to take my body to that extent and to push my body to that extent. There are many people who are able to do this in a healthy way that doesn't turn into bad habits and that doesn't turn destructive. And I think that's amazing. I think I'm just at a place in my life where I recognize that that's not me. And it's Mm -hmm. also not going to bring me joy. What's going to bring me more joy is knowing that every single day I'm working to fight racism. Every single day I'm working to tell women that they deserve 
deserve joy and it's out there. They just need to fight for it. You know, every single day I am doing something to, you know, fend off the coming cataclysm of climate change. You know, those are the things that really drive my passion. Seeing if I can, you know, run the fastest marathon ever that that just doesn't do it for me you know and i'm not mm-hmm. saying that it shouldn't do it for anyone else it just doesn't do it for me that just seems so shallow Joy. i know i'm so superficial <laughs> god i should be trying to be cute right now <laughs> you know i th- i think uh, i think you're actually the perfect person to to shed some light on, on a question that i've been interested in for for some time which is the relationship between issues or struggles like body dysmorphia and eating disorders and having a passion for food. Because mm. you see those things, those two things, which they're not the same, they're, they're entirely distinct, but you see them in the same person very often. And I would think maybe it's like an orthogonal relationship where like a passion for food could get tied up into disordered eating in an unhealthy way, but it could also be part of like rescuing you from it. So help help me understand that. That's such a great way of putting it. It's almost like, you know how some, there's this great part Hawthorne wrote in the Scarlet Letter, like, you know, what is hate but love on the other side? It's like kind of like that thing. It's like, you know, love and hate are the, you know, the two sides of the same coin. And I think it's sort of that. It's like, you know, you can be really, really into food, but then on the flip side of it, it can also become sort of your burden, right? That love of food can create a burden, you know? And, and I think that that is definitely what happened to me is I love food. I love eating. I love tasting food. I love eating food, all of those things. But, you know, sometimes when you love something too much, you realize that now it's become sort of a, an albatross in some ways, right? And that's how I feel like, you know, coupled with that sort of these ridiculous demands by, you know, the media and beauty standards and on all of those things, you know, of what it takes, you know, or even in the athletic realm, you know, we've seen some misguided coaching out there about what it means to, you know, excel as an athlete, as a runner, particularly for women, but also for men, I've seen it. You know, when you couple all of those things, it's very easy to see how a love of food can quickly on a dime transform into almost a fear of food and that's exactly what happened to me and you know you're right in terms of how can food then be a vehicle for recovery from that kind of situation and for me when I went vegan in 2016 and by vegan I mean fully vegan as in it wasn't just for my health when I started to embrace the more ethical components of my choice to eat a certain way, then it was no longer about calories in versus calories out. It wasn't just about, well, you know, I need this many grams of carbs in order to fuel this run. It wasn't just about that. It was actually with every bite of food, I'm actually doing something, you know, like good. I'm voting for animals. I'm voting for the planet, you know. Like I feel like there's so much more intention behind the way that I eat. And in that way, it loosened all of these sort of strict rules that I had in my head about what good eating needed to look like. I was like, no, it's not really about that anymore. It's like, you know, it's about doing all these other things that, you know, all this intention that goes into every plate of food that you 
you bring to dinner. So in that way, it, it has been very healing to me. And now, of course, you know, with this iteration of the Korean vegan, it's not just about the planet and it's not just about the animals, but it's also about showing people the stories about kimchi. You know, how do you make kimchi? Why is it made that way? What does it mean to me as a Korean American? What does it mean to my parents who can never go back to their homeland for as long as they live? They're never going to go back to North Korea. Not going to happen, you know? So what does this kimchi mean to them? What does it mean to my dad when he makes naengmyeon? And what does it mean when his daughter, his American daughter, feeds him that naengmyeon? There's so much more to this food now, and that also helps to provide intentionality to my eating. That's like intuitive eating, but like times 10. (laughs) (laughs) It is, it is, it is. I love that. I mean, intuitive eating is another... It's another stepping stone, I feel like, in terms of perhaps recovering from a place where you felt so tied up by the way Mm -hmm. that you were supposed to eat. Mm -hmm. And once you remove the calories in, calories out, that becomes so much less about you, too, that big picture about food. It's a really good way to think about it. I want to talk a bit about, I don't know if you were ever recreationally on a sports team or anything like that growing up. I know you had like your Sunday fitness requirements for your family, (laughs) but I'm wondering if you ever had any role models that looked like you, that you felt you could connect with, especially with having parents as as immigrants to the U.S. Was there anyone that you saw that you felt like you could go after and, and replicate and really connect with? Probably not athletically. Like, no. I think the closest that would have ever come is probably later in life when we started to see this explosion of golf, particularly among, Mm -hmm. you know, Asian Americans and Korean Americans. And also because my dad is obsessed with golf, (laughs) Um, like literally obsessed with golf. I didn't have like harbor dreams of becoming a golfer or anything like that, but it was more just like, oh, like this is another area from a sports perspective where many Korean Americans are excelling and therefore it's cool to see that sort of representation, right? I think, you know, just kind of getting to the deeper like meaning of your question, Hannah, is like the importance of representation, right? In athletics, in every aspect of life. And I think in athletics, you know, that's one of the reasons the Olympics were always so cool for us. We loved watching the Olympics because it was like the one time (laughs) or, or World Cup. Like those are the times where we could see like faces that looked like ours on TV, like kicking ass you know, at a sport, like that was always so cool. And it was sort of a a wonderful way for our family to come together and really rally behind this cultural identity that had become so diluted through the process of immigration and assimilation, right? It was like, okay, now, no, I am definitely Korean because I want Team Korea to beat Team USA, you know, like it was that sort of thing. But, you know, individually, I never had any like dreams of like, oh, I'm going to be like that. Like there was a, a Korean Korean man who I think won the the marathon, the gold medal in the marathon one year. And he, you know, the year that the Olympics were in Seoul, he ran a part of that. He held the, the, the torch, a part of the torch. And I remember my parents were sobbing. <laughs> they were just weeping. And I remember as a little girl, that was really cool to me. I didn't have dreams of becoming a runner. But I, again, I just thought like, wow, that's so cool seeing Korea excel in this way, in an athletic way. But I think more broadly speaking, you know, One of the really cool things about living 
in this day and age is seeing you know korean pop culture all over the place like Mm -hmm. everywhere and like it is almost bizarre seeing faces like mine on television now just was not the thing when I was growing up. It just absolutely wasn't. And I didn't even realize how much for granted I took that until recently. I was like, oh yeah, I guess I always viewed things through white people, you know, white Americans, because that's what, you know, family ties was. That's what, you know, growing (laughs) pains was. I I never saw people that look like mine and I never questioned it until now. And then I'm now I'm seeing BTS on American Express commercials. It's so weird, you know? Our Coaches of Color initiative got underway this year and we picked our first, you know, the model is apprenticeship grants. And our first apprentice who started January 1st, a young woman named Jessica Schneer, grew up in Iowa, Korean mother, a Hispanic father. She's 24, now lives in San Diego. You know, very early in her coaching journey. It's like, it's all in front of her. If she were on this screen with, with, with the rest of us, had a mic in front of her. I'm really putting you on the spot here, Joanne, but I'm, really, I'm drawing out the question to give you a chance to come up with a pearl of wisdom. Like, thinking. What, 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 what would you say to this young, young lady? Would it be like, beware of X, or maybe just more like of, of encouragement, a little more of a you got this, or, or somewhere in between? Hmm. I think that the challenge of running coaches and running leaders is getting more people of color interested (laughs) in running, period. I, I feel like that is a real challenge, at least one that I've observed. I think that some people still think of of the sport, at least in the United States, is not a, a, a terribly diverse one. And when something is already not diverse, people are reluctant, diverse people are reluctant to participate in it, right? Because they don't feel like it's as safe for them as perhaps a more diverse sport. And there's also just like the sexiness aspect of it, right? Like, you know, people would rather play basketball or, you know, Morning's something like that. Morning's not sexy? <laughs> you know, I mean, I think it can be. I Dang think it, that, now <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> I think that it can be. I think, you know, you know, there are a lot of people in running now who have done a lot to, to make it cooler. But, you know, I, I think it's still... It's there are other sports out there that we are competing against, right? That are already more diverse and therefore have that sort of vocabulary again to service their diverse members in a way that's perhaps more effective and nuanced and informed, right? So I think that how do you gain the interest of people of color into a sport that maybe some people view as somewhat monochromatic, you know? And I think the way to do that is to sort of build the trust of these communities out there. If you want more people of color to be interested in running, then instead of waiting for them to come to you, you probably need to go out to them in some respects, whether there's a community group or even if there isn't a community group, perhaps this is an opportunity for you to create a running group within an underserved community or a community of color or a place where it's just more diverse. You know, that's perhaps an idea. And then to the extent that you do have a client or you have a running club, 
and there are people of color there, I think you really need to dig deep to figure out what their situation is at home. You know, whether it's financially, whether it's family-wise, do they have the support of their family members? A lot of immigrant family, you know, parents, they're not like my dad (laughs) necessarily. They don't want you to do extracurricular activities. They want you to just focus on school and school alone. And so like any time that you take to do the running team or do cross country, like they might be discouraging that, you know? So these are things that you may have to come up against for some of your clients that you may not in other situations. These are such broad generalizations and and I, I don't want to, again, make it seem like this is the way that it is all the time for everyone either way. But I think just kind of being open, being humble, and then again, this idea of sometimes you're going to have to go to them. You're not, they're not going to meet you halfway. You're going to have to go more than halfway. Yep. We've heard that more than once. So yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. I'm glad that I'm not saying something completely out of turn. (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. And we normally wrap up with a super deep closing question. And you know what, Matt, this just proves our synergy as co-hosts because my question was going to be, what would you like, what would be your word of advice for us, especially as to white people <laughs> trying to make coaches of color have grants. We have an advisory board and, and whatnot, but I think you, you just answered that as well. Well, I think you guys are doing something amazing and something important and even just creating, like even putting words to that idea is so important because I feel like, Matt, you know this, words have so much power and until they're articulated, sometimes the idea isn't even really there. Like it's not fully formed. And now you've given that idea a space to form. Well said. Yeah, it's, it, it's powerful. Yeah, it really is. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of late to this making the world a better place. Thing, oh, no, I disagree. Amazing. You definitely, <laughs> I mean, with, the, with all your writing, how could you not consider that making a better place? Yeah, it's different. It's different. The but yeah, just it, it, it literally gets me out of bed in the morning, like especially, you know, with what's going on with my health. You know, I, I talk myself out of retiring every single day. And this this undertaking is the thing that will not let me walk away. I think um, that's so amazing. That's I think you have so much left to contribute to the running world. So I'm glad to hear that every day you are deciding not to retire. (laughs) (laughs) Please, please don't, Matt. (laughs) You also have this podcast that you have to show up to. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Minor detail, minor detail. (laughs) Hannah's got this. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, gosh. I also wanted to, Matt's horn here, but Triathlete Magazine came out with some movers and shakers in multi-sport space, triathlon space um, for 2022. And our own Matt Fitzgerald and Bertrand Newson, who's on our advisory board, made that list. And I think that is just step one of what is about to happen. So it doesn't surprise to, me. Yeah, just wanted to pat him on the back for that. Because he, he emailed it to me and he said, see below, period. I was like, huh, what is this? Oh, my. <laughs> you deserve um, all the pats on the back. <laughs> yeah, like he's like shaking his head right now. Sure, it's just a list, but... I mean, that's our first splash of many. Yeah, I mean, you can cut this section out if you want to, if you think it's too self-serving, but I will say this, like one of the things that I love about being at this time in my life is that it's okay for me to look back and say, okay, well, I didn't finish that thread or that didn't go the way that I wanted it to, or I had this goal and I didn't meet it. 
And I'm still able to say, but all the work that built up to that part of the thread that got artificially prematurely snipped is still valuable to me. And I can still use that to, you know, pick things up somewhere else, right? And I think that for Matt, like your writing has changed so many people's lives. I've I've read a lot of the books and like there're like things in my brain that are just like stuck there from your books whether it's 80/20, whether it's, you know, the running diet, the endurance diet, you know, certainly life is a marathon. These are things that sort of like kind of threads in in my brain and I'm absolutely certain that they're threads in everyone else's brain. So you have this immense talent for writing, telling a story and for inspiring people. And so wherever you are, you know, athletically with your illness and things like that, I mean, that's never going to change. Like that's evergreen, you know, those words that you've contributed to the running community. And now seeing that you're taking that to do this initiative and find other ways to inspire people through this elsewhere. It, it's it's from my perspective, from my vantage point, without undermining kind of the, the struggle that you're going through with your health, it's like so appropriate that you're leveraging that for this. We're definitely cutting this. <laughs> <laughs> it's just very inspiring to me to see, you know, what you're doing. Because I, I, yes. I can understand how hard it is. Thank you, Joy. Mm-hmm. Appreciate that. Are we done? Uh, I don't know what happened to this podcast. <laughs> I often have this effect. Ah, why are we all crying? It got, a, it, it got away from me. You do. <laughs> well, Matt's description of you being nourishing is was spot on when you said that. And I was like, that's exactly how I feel viewing your content. Didn't you, being didn't you literally bring me food at uh, speaking? Yes, event I did. In Boston. I did. Yeah. I did because I think. I la- I- I was worried about you. I was like, this man has yeah, not I, eaten. I did not eat. I did <laughs> yeah. not eat that day. What and, was oh it? Oh my goodness. I, you know, we bought him like, a, it was like our favorite like restaurant there in Boston. Like, you know, when you're vegan, you like find that one place and then you just eat yes. there five times a day. And so that's yes. like what we did. Like it was this place where you literally is like a bowl where you can just like add vegetables and beans and salsas and stuff like that. And it just was so delicious. And so I remember Matt, you had said that like, you hadn't eaten all day and I saw you carrying those boxes of books and it just broke my heart. And I was like, this man has to carry all these books and he hasn't eaten eating all day and you know he's training and all this stuff so yeah we brought you some food <laughs> there are certain meals you will never forget i mean it was probably really good anyway but you know it's just because like i hadn't eaten all day yeah. and i've been running around and then it was such an afterthought just like oh now now i'm off stage i, I can eat and a lot of times when you get good food you're hoping and expecting it to yeah. be good. i wasn't even thinking about it it was just like the first bite in <laughs> went into my mouth and my knees buckled like it was like oh my god this is good <laughs> that was the best meals when you're really hungry <laughs> yes oh man yeah that thoughtfulness too coming back to that yes well. exactly yes yeah. downright maternal oh well <laughs> i'm glad i can do that since i don't have kids of my own <laughs> Well, Joanne, thank you so much for your time today. You've got like, if you, you could probably make one more TikTok. It's 4 p.m. right now. So you've got like one more in you for the day since they take seven hours, right? <laughs> I think we'll call it a day. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thank you again for your time. It was a pleasure. Really enjoyed having you on the show today. Well, thank you both. It has been a complete thrill to be here. Say hi to Anthony. I think we should put something of his in our show notes too. Hannah, I'll follow up with you on that. Uh, 
Sounds yeah. good. And that would be a, a real thrill for him. He was so excited about this podcast. He's been talking oh. about it for like the past five days. When's your podcast with Matt again? When's your podcast? <laughs> yeah, because I mean, he, he, he is how you and I know yes. each other. You know, it's just like, but. Uh, He's how I yeah, know all so, the famous anyhow. people in my life. It's <laughs> through my husband. Right <laughs> we'll toss yeah. him in the show notes too. Add him to the pile. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. What a wholesome way to end that episode, Matt. I don't know if you remember. We do record the outro separately, but we got a little emotional at the end of it. So I hope that you stuck around. Oh, and... you left that in? I thought you were yes, going to cut I that did. part. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I no. know. I even left the part where you said, okay, we're definitely going to cut this, but it's staying in. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. If, you know, I, may, I make you do the editing, so you get to make these calls. It's true. If you've made it this far, wipe away your tears. It's time for what's your jam, Matt. What is your jam this week? We missed you the last two weeks, so better be a good one. Yeah. One of the reasons I like doing these is often the song I picked is by an artist who is brand new to me. And then so for the the sake of the segment, I'll do a little research. And then often it's just like the super cool person that I'll end up following on Instagram. That's very much the case with my jam for this week. The song, I mean, you don't even have to get past the title of the song. The song is called, (laughs) I Love This Song. (laughs) And uh, the artist, her stage name is Flower of Love. It's all one word and of is spelled O-V for those who want to track her down, Flower of Love. Her real name is Joyce Kissy. She is 16 years old. She may be 17. She's a Londoner. Her family's originally from the Ivory Coast in West Africa. So the song is just kind of like, I guess, like an indie pop sort of vibe. With, uh, I like that. Like, yeah. Yeah, but it's catchy. I think probably like she just, you know, I guess she works with her brother. Her brother comes up with the beats. And I think like the song probably originated with him and he passed it on to her. And she started playing around with the melody and was just thinking, I love this song. And then like, I think I'll just call it that. It's like when Genesis called the song Abacab. Uh, it was the, the letter names for the different parts of the song, like mm. A, B, A, C. It's just like, well, we'll just call it that. Screw it. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, 16 years old, um, making great music. So wow, what a future in front of her. Uh, Flower of Love. I love this song. Awesome. Ironically, my jam for this week is also from a youngster, 18 years old, Genevieve Stokes. So I discovered one of her songs earlier this year, and then another one of her songs came up on my Discover Weekly, and I was like, oh, I know this voice. Clicked on it, listened to her most recent album, which came out in, I think, end of 2021, and it was just on repeat for the entire day. It's 19 minutes long, and it's one that is like start to finish, listen to the whole thing. Her voice is insane. So Genevieve Stokes, the song specifically, this was the one that came up on my Discover Weekly. It's called Parking Lot. Definitely not one that I'd throw on in the gym, but it's a very, very good one. And listen to the whole album start to finish. One of my favorite things to do on a plane. So if you're traveling, download the album, start to finish, no stops. Beautiful talk to you guys next week actually we won't talk to you next week because season two is upon us so we'll talk to you guys in the future not next week taking a little break here podcasting but we'll be back with season two